Today's Binge Bone is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. Like us, with lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming. Dell Cinema Technology makes whatever you love to watch even better. Call 800 by dell to learn more or visit dell.com slash dell cinema. Woo! Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. If you've ever wondered whether Newt's Commander is a virgin, keep listening. If you're not interested in that kind of coarse discussion, please take it elsewhere to one of the fine podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network, like Villains with Shea Serrano. Yeah, nothing coarse on Villains. That's it. It's just <laughs> totally fun, good time, rated G stuff. Check out Villains and listen to Binge Mode. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. Oh! If you don't yet know why we're looking for roaches and teapots, Ooh. please proceed with extreme caution. And now, Binge Mode. What makes Albus Dumbledore so fond of you? I really couldn't say. So setting a pack of dangerous creatures loose here was... It was just another accident. Is that right? Why would I do it deliberately? To expose wizard kind. To provoke war between the magical and non-magical worlds. Mass slaughter for the greater good, you mean? Welcome to Binge Mode Harry yes, Potter. Yes, 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 yes. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. It's very good. Joining me today, now that he's finished asking whether I prefer pie or strudel, Ooh. it's Ringer Senior Creative, your head magizoologist. Oh, yeah. Jason Concepcion. Mal, you prefer strudel, huh? I do. And you prefer Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you prefer to say muggle, or no mash, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to review the latest editions at Kowalski Quality Baked Goods. Also, why don't you head over to theringer.com slash shop to check out our new Binge Mode merch. Not edible, like Jacob's Pashki, but delicious nonetheless. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how entering the belly of the beast shapes chapters 12 through 14 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode, we're briefly hitting pause on Hallows because it is Fantastic Beasts Week. We are preparing for this weekend's Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald debut by diving into the first film in the new five-part franchise, 2016's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. Yes. While the first Beast film is today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and eight original films and the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series into account from the moment we disembark our ship and switch our cases to muggle-worthy for the customs official. However, want to clarify something. This episode 
is a Crimes of Grindelwald spoiler-free zone. Yes! This is a podcast about the first film and a primer for the second, not a reaction to the second. So if you haven't seen that yet, fly as freely as Frank the Thunderbird into this episode. If you're ready for Crimes of Grindelwald discussion, listen to this anyway. But then please check out our instant reaction video breakdown of the new film on the ringer.com and the ringer's YouTube channel. Isaac Lee and Zach Cram joined us for that. And our various other coverage across Ringer properties. And of course, stay tuned to the Binge Mode feed for a full deep dive episode into that film. For now, hell yeah. Put on your helmet, grab some musk. She's mad for it. Because it's time to find some fantastic beasts. Mal, so you're the podcaster with the case full of monsters, huh? News travels fast. It does. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Fantastic Beasts and where to find them by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot to Hogwarts Express. The year is 1926. Gellert Grindelwald. The most dangerous dark wizard of the age has disappeared after unleashing a wave of terror on the European continent. Meanwhile, Newt's commander, a British wizard and magizoologist, arrives by ship in New York City on a mysterious mission. He encounters a city on edge. There's been a rash of unexplained attacks. Whole buildings reduced to rubble by an unidentified force. Anti-magic sentiment is on the rise, and riding this wave of antipathy is Mary Lou Barebone, leader of the New Salem Philanthropic Society an adopted mother of a grim young man named Credence, who we will soon learn is working in secret for Percival Graves, attempting to find the powerful child in Graves' vision. Newt encounters Mary outside a bank, where he also makes the acquaintance of a mo- oh. Excuse us. Monomash. By the name of Jacob Kowalski, who hopes to procure a loan to open a bakery. Hijinks ensue when Newt Sniffler, drawn by the scent of riches and shiny stuff, breaks free of his capacious valise. Now that's an extension charm, folks. <laughs> and begins a rampage of theft. Fucking love the Niffler. This places Newt quickly and firmly on the radar of disgraced or Tina Goldstein. Together, they, along with Tina's sister, Queenie, uncover a conspiracy led by Grindelwald disguised as the Auror Percival Graves to harness the power of an Obscurus, a destructive force that feeds on repressed magic, which in this case emanates from Credence. They manage to bring down Grindelwald, recapturing the escaped creatures and wiping no mage memories. Sure. Tough looks for, for all, of, all of our guys. For all of New York City. Very tough. Along the way. Newt returns to Europe to write his book. And Jacob, using silver Akami shells left to him by Nude as collateral to secure a bank loan, manages to open his pastry shop. And the movie ends when Queenie walks in, and despite his wiped memory, Jacob smiles. Beautiful. Mal! Yeah? I'll send you a copy of my book, if I may. It's going to be the foundation for an entire film franchise, so you should probably read it. Slightly different format for today. We're going to go a bit out of order and start with the restricted section. A little foundation here off yes. the top. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the textbook. Fantastic beasts and where to find them. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is one of three companion books written by J.K. Rowling to supplement her core story. And in fact, it is actually older than some of the books in that core. Fantastic Beasts was released in 2001 between Goblet and Order, 
along with Quidditch Through the Ages, while the tales of Beetle the Bard, for obvious reasons, didn't come out until after the publication of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Rowling conceived of, wrote, and even illustrated these books to raise money for charity. And according to a recently republished edition, Beasts and Quidditch combined have raised nearly 20 million pounds for the charity comic relief, in addition to money for Lumos, Rowling's own foundation. All three companion books, however, don't list Rowling as the author. She writes them all in character, and as such, they are full of unique personality and clever jokes. Quidditch is credited to Kenilworthy Wisp, a Quidditch expert and otherwise anonymous wizard. Beetle, obviously, to Beetle, with explanatory notes by Albus Dumbledore. And Beast to Newt Scamander, the magizoologist we meet in the movie of the same name, who, within the Wizarding Universe, was commissioned by Augustus Worm of the <laughs> Obscurus Books Publishing Damn. Company. Interesting placement of the term Obscurus there. To write a guide to all the world's magical creatures. The Beast book itself isn't very long, just more than 80 pages plus an introduction, but it's full of drawings and footnotes and all manner of fun little details. It's written as an encyclopedia, with the creatures listed in alphabetical order and characterized by Ministry of Magic classification. For ease of reference, Newt lays out those classes in the introduction. 1X represents a, quote, boring creature, like the good old flobber worm. Feed him some lettuce. 2X represent a, quote, harmless creature that may be domesticated, like the bow truckle, gnome, grindelow. 3Xs represent a creature that a, quote, competent wizard should cope with like the Niffler, Pixie, and Hippogriff. Four Xs represent a creature that is, quote, dangerous, requires specialist knowledge, like the Arumpet, Thunderbird, and a Sphinx. And five Xs represents a creature that is a, quote, known wizard killer, impossible to train or domesticate, like the Acromantula, Basilisk, and a dragon. Because Beasts is meant as a copy of the in-universe book of the same name, The original printed version also included handwritten notes from Harry, Ron, and Hermione, as if they had perused a copy of Newt's work and added comments based on their own experiences. For instance, the very first page reads, quote, this book belongs to Harry Potter, followed by a delightful back and forth with different handwriting styles. Quote, shared by Ron Weasley because Hmm. his fellow part. (laughs) One writes, to which another responds, why don't you buy your own book then? (laughs) Write on your own book, Hermione, Ron says, to which Hermione retorts, you bought all those dung bombs on Saturday. You could have bought a new book instead. And Ron finishes with a flourish. Dung bombs rule. They do rule. (laughs) They do. These notes are a mix of funny. Like when one just circles the word bum (laughs) in the middle of the creature name Glum Bumble. And informational. Like when they cross out the heading for Norwegian Ridgeback and write in instead Baby Norbert. But most of all, they spend much of their ink dunking on Hagrid. In the intro, Newt writes, quote, The 1965 ban on experimental breeding has made the creation of new species illegal, to which our friends, fresh off their experiences, helping breed the blast-ended scroots, note in the margin, but no one's told Hagrid. (laughs) Just pages later, when Newt lays out the classification scheme, they amend the 5X description to, quote, known wizard killer or anything Hagrid likes. And when the summary for Hippogriff says domestication should be attempted only by an expert, they write in, has Hagrid read this book? Tough stuff for the gamekeeper. But not tough stuff for we readers, who learn plenty of fascinating, revealing information about all the creatures we encounter in rolling stories, and plenty more 
that we've never seen. Many of the restricted section details we've included about creatures like dragons and phoenixes come from this book, and much more of it will be useful, we're sure, as the Fantastic Beasts movie franchise continues. Protect Newt. Protect Protect everyone in his suitcase. Protect all beasts most of all, even the 5X kind. Jason. Yes. I don't think I'm dreaming. What gave it away? I ain't got the brains to make this up. But I've got the brains to watch a movie. Mm. And watch it we have. Today, before witches and wizards, muggles and nomages alike turn their attention to the impending fantastic beast, The Crimes of Grindelwald, we're going to discuss the debut film in the franchise by handing out some superlatives and house points. Yes. Dishing out seven awards. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Number one, as always, is the big idea. And in this case, it is secrets. But very quickly, before we explore the secrets that dominate the film, let's talk about the film itself. How do you feel about this movie? I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but first of all, I love this movie. I also love this movie. I think it's... I think it's among the best Harry Potter films. I completely agree. It might be the best Harry Potter film. Like, it's really good. I really enjoy it. I think it's great. I'm really glad that it exists. Yes. It's kind of everything you want from a prequel that's working with established canon in that it not only gives you those little morsels of fan service and that you're seeing things that you've wondered about, you're finding out about Newt, you're finding out about Geller Grindelwald, seeing that backstory, but you're also learning more. The world is expanding in a way that feels really valuable. And then, you know, learning about stuff like Obscurus is, yeah. it actually impacts the way you perceive the story. It really changes the way you perceive the story in a really additive way. Yeah, I think it's a really great marriage and hybrid of new characters and a new world that we get to really inhabit for the first time and form new attachments to and new affection for and that connection to the original canon. And obviously, moving forward in the film franchise, it seems like we're going to be heading toward much more of a focus on connections to the original canon. And when this franchise was first announced, one of the narratives, certainly not everyone or even necessarily the dominant one, but one of the narratives was, well, why would Fantastic Beasts be the choice here? You know, do the Marauders, do X number of things. And it's just a success. Establishing Newt as a character, whether you care about the magical creatures at all, like we both do, but whether or not you do, almost ends up being moot because there's so much else in the story to latch on to. So much new chemistry between the characters. One of the things that is really delightful about this movie is we have a non-magical person who— becomes an avatar for the audience in a really effective way. We're going to explore all of this at length, but we wanted to establish off the top that we're fans of this film. I really enjoyed it. I should also say that Eddie Redmayne, his new commander, has done something really interesting with his performance. Created a character with gestures, with that kind of uncomfortability with eye contact that he uh, is clearly putting into the character that is really, really fascinating. You know a lot about Newt just by seeing him interact with his environment and with other people without even speaking, just the way he either looks or doesn't look. I really enjoy this movie. Yeah, he's tremendous. All right, let's talk about the big idea of the film, Secrets, because there are many of them. A lot is occurring in the shadows, waiting to reveal itself to not only other characters in the film, but to viewers. Yeah, so I think the first one right off the top is, you know, the movie opens with a montage of Grindelwald's exploits and attacks throughout Europe. So 
you know, the very first secret is what's going on with Grindelwald. Where is, where is, he, where is he gone? Right. Why has he gone underground? Mm-hmm. To what end? It's a really cool choice to make because you present him right there at the beginning of the movie and then he's just this shadow that kind of lurks over everything that happens until the ultimate reveal. The twist. The twist. And I thought that was really, really, really effective for setting the stakes of what this is because as you said, you know, the original critique was, why do we need this? Mm -hmm. Here's why you need this because do you want to know about the most powerful dark wizard of the age? Boom. Right. Give you that right away. I thought that was great. I agree completely. I love that. And then we shift very quickly with these newspaper headline montages that port us from Grindelwald to New York through the Statue of Liberty to Newt's arrival. Yeah. And right away, the question of what he's doing. Yeah, why is he here? Why is he here? What is his real mission? And more broadly than that, even the way that magic and magical life is positioned in New York. Very stark. Yeah. These people aren't hiding. Now, of course, the magical universe that we're familiar with from the original Harry Potter stories, you know, the statute of secrecy is in place. You're not out there casting spells in public unless you're making one of the movies where they're flying on brooms across the Thames (laughs) for no reason. But otherwise, you're not doing that. And even so, though, there's a tone of being underground and hidden in a way that is— Feels much more tense. Yes. For example, in the early moments of the film, Newt heads to the bank, and we're confronted with the second Salemers, Mary Lou Barebone, Mm. the banner by her side of two hands snapping a wand. And it's this really fascinating contrast where, on the one hand, her campaigning about witches living among us tells you that there are people who know that this is true, that magic is real, and not only know, but are working actively to suppress it. And then the contrast moments later after a little Niffler mishap leads to Newt and Jacob sinking up, apparating out of the bank, spotted by Tina, who herself has a mystery. Yeah. Apprehending Newt and taking him in for a Section 3A, not obliviating a nomage. So not erasing the memories of, we're probably going to switch in and out of saying nomage and muggle, by the way. Not obliviating, not erasing the memories of a non-magical person who you interact with is a crime. That's how stark things are. It is a crime to not erase a muggle's memory. That's how drastic things are. There is also, and this is crucial for Newt in particular, a ban on beasts in Mm. New York City. They risk exposure of the world. We learn across the course of the film that nomages can't marry magical people. There is Yes. Total enforced separation. Before we get into Tina, I thought one of the things that uh, playing off the theme of secrecy that was really interesting about Queenie's character, Queenie is quite powerful legilimens. And I love the idea that in this movie that is so much about secrets, hidden secrets, hidden motives. Here's this one character whose power is that she just unveils secrets. Yes. She's can't control it. Can't control it. She can't help but go right to the where the secrets are and then just reveal them almost happily. That's a really cool dynamic within this structure of characters who each of them has this mission that they're trying to keep away from the other person mm-hmm. and they're trying to find this kind of like level of detente and then you bring in Queenie who's just like all heart and is 
this really nurturing character in a way that, you know, it's not to say that Newt is not nurturing. Newt is nurturing towards beasts and towards animals, but finding that kind of nurturing emotion for other people is difficult for Newt. And then you bring Queenie into it and she just has like an open heart for everyone in a way that grounds the movie and brings a heart into it that is really wonderful. It's great what Queenie brings to it. Yeah, and it serves such a crucial function in the plot because she is able to sense and hear later on that Newt and Tina are in trouble. But the key to it, as you're saying, is the emotional impact. And I love the balance, the way that it swings across the spectrum between being this this gift that unlocks, that allows her to get close to people, and also, you see right away that yeah. it's a terrible burden. She's for haunted her. by it. It's very tough, and very it's hard. So clearly, a huge part of why there's this instant connection and then this sincere affection yes. between Queenie and Jacob, because this is a person who is so pure, and he's just open, open-hearted, yes. open-minded, delighted by everything around him. Doesn't want anything from her yeah. other than love and interest, right. and. Again, because there's this burden to introduce all of these new characters to an audience who has cared for so long about known characters, it's a really amazing thing, I think, with Queenie in particular, to just make you care so much about her. I think Tina's maybe a more important character in the story. Yes, surely. You respond more to Queenie. Yes, because Tina is so much more repressed in a lot of ways. She's so career-focused in a way that kind of, like, blinkers out everything. She just wants her job as an aura back. And that's one of the secrets, too. So when she takes Newt in, we realize that something's off right away. The way people react, the way the house elf reacts, they're like, wait a second, you want to go to the floor where the auras are? Why? And And she's like, just take me there. Her series of fraught interactions that are revealing to us that something is is amiss, that she has basically lost the ability to function as an aura. And the great scene with Colin Farrell's Percival Graves, who we will learn, as stated over the course of the film, is really Gellert Grindelwald in disguise. He tries to give her a chance. Yeah. Which is interesting in terms of just thinking about how Grindelwald, who that really is, is functioning in his interactions with other people. And then, of course, opens the case and it's Jacob's pastries because the case swap is what leads Newt to then go pursue Jacob. But why did Tina get the boot? Well, we learn over the course of the film that it's because she attacked Mary Lou Barebone uh-huh. for abusing her adopted children. And she couldn't stand to see this injustice occur. Yeah. And it's such an incredible thing that even though throughout the whole movie you're like, okay, well, Tina's kind of, she's sort of working to block Newt yeah. for much of the way. And then you see with something like that, she has as big of a heart as her sister, Queenie. She just has a different way of expressing it. And the film really succeeds in that respect, showing you that these people are all united. There's a reason that these four, that Newt, Jacob, Queenie, and Tina find each other and come together. And it's because they believe in pursuing fairness and openness. They're just all doing it in different ways. Speaking of Mary Lou Barebone and her adopted children, Credence— is operating on multiple levels of secrecy. On the one hand, his adopted mother is a vociferous enemy of magic and everything magical. It's, I guess, uncharitable to compare her to the kind of ways that the Dursleys were introduced where they hate things that are not normal. Mary Lou Barebone is that on steroids. She's Mm -hmm. absolutely, virulently 
anti-magic. Always count on you to look for any excuse you can <sighs> to praise the Dursleys. That's not enough for being unfair. Come on, aligned. <laughs> Come on. So not only is Credence having to keep his true nature secret from his mother, who is absolutely violently anti what he is. He also is secretly working for a magical person to discover someone who it turns out we will soon discover is actually him. But that push and pull of repression and the damage of repression, the damage of secrets, you know, secrets want out, especially when the secret is you repressing who you actually are. Right. Credence doesn't know who he is. The reason that he has decided to work for Graves is because Graves has promised him that he will bring him into the magical world. And one of the more crushing moments in the film when Graves is frustrated that Credence hasn't found this child for him, he says, you're a squib. I can smell it on you. It was crushing. And Credence wants to know who he is and how he can be the person that he wants to be. And to contrast that, not only the not knowing, but actually being surrounded by people who are trying to tear down the thing that you want. It's devastating. It's agonizing. Yes. And we learn that he is actually filling multiple roles. So he's Credence, you know, who we think he is. We learn, as you said, that he is actually the quote-unquote child. Graves thought that he was looking for a younger child, but he has a vision about this child, this power will learn the Obscurial. And that Credence is, in fact, the Obscurial. That it's not Modesty, who the film at many turns tries to convince you it is. The wand and various other things. So it's not just that he's the being that Graves is hunting. It's Mm -hmm. that he's the being we see throughout the film wreaking havoc across the city. We see this force tear through the cobblestone of the street, forceful enough to push over cars, tear down buildings, create rubble-strewn streets. Later, this force will kill Senator Shaw, haunting. And then later, will kill Mary. The moment when you realize that's actually Credence is after Graves fully tears him down. Yes. And then this force, and we're going to talk more about the obscurial and obscurous magic later, but the force comes out of him and pushes through the walls and reveals that this is really who Credence is. It's incredible. So Credence is working with Graves to try and find this child who Graves has had a vision of. And there's so many clues to the Grindelwald reveal. And the one that I'm most interested in, one of my favorite scenes in the whole film is, so after Tina and Newt are arrested for, the suspicion is that one of Newt's beasts Mm -hmm. has murdered the center. And he's questioning Newt. And he brings out the obscurus that Newt has in his right. case. And he shows, and he's like, what about this right. dangerous that, creature? That Newt has separated from right. a girl who died. And Newt is saying, well, no, it's actually harmless. And Graves Grindelwald says, so it's useless, so, so it's without, useless the without the host. And Newt says, useless. This is a force that killed a girl. Yeah. It's um, chilling. What would you use it for? And he says Grindelwald's catchphrase, mm-hmm. uses it. And there's that moment of where Graves, he keeps his cover, but you can see the wheels turn there. Yes. Where he's thinking, hmm, everything was going pretty well until this guy showed up. Right. This is the moment, because the whole way you're wondering, well, why is Graves 
so obsessed with finding yeah. what we think is a beast. It is not actually a creature, but what we think is a beast that hunting the city. Yeah. And then why is he working with Credence? Right. Well, there's, the, of course, unbelievable moment where he gives him a necklace bearing the sign of the Deathly Hallows. And this scene with Newt is when you're like, something's really something's, wrong Something's here. up. Yeah. Really, really wrong here. And it's all building toward the ultimate reveal, which Newt and Tina, despite being surrounded by a horde of Makusa orers and law enforcement and the president, they are the ones who beat him. And then Newt reveals his true identity. So after Newt throws his catchphrase at him and Graves slash Grindelwald is immediately like, Sentence them to death. Mm-hmm. Do it now. Yeah. And that's really the moment where you're like, no, there's something else going on. There's something else. And so that's what makes the ultimate reveal like so interesting because you have to think that Grindelwald is always looking for the hand of Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Whom he mentions. Whom he mentions. Do. Grindelwald, who knows Dumbledore so well, would always be looking for the hand of Dumbledore to oppose him. And then here comes this young man thrown out of Hogwarts, but somehow still in the good graces of Dumbledore, clearly, mm-hmm. who's ostensibly here doing something about magical beasts, but also seems to be getting in my way a lot. Right. What makes Albus Dumbledore so fond of you? That chill is great. But also just a basically a perfect foundation for the rest of the film yes. franchise. Yeah. And of course, part of the reason that he's asking those questions is yeah. it's not really clear to anyone what Nude is doing there. That's the thing. He's saying, ah, oh, looking for a puffskin. And then in a more honest, vulnerable moment, he's telling viewers and Jacob that he's really there to free Frank the Thunderbird. But still, Still, we sense there's another hand at work here. What is really going on? What is Newt's connection to Dumbledore? That question informs a lot of the fan interest and engagement around the movie and a lot of the buildup toward the new film. And then we end on a bit of a secret. This is a... (laughs) I guess you could call it a secret. A mass-enforced secret. Yes. When the collective memory of non-magical New York is wiped by— Only that section of—only, like, the downtown, (laughs) midtown area. Frank the Thunderbird. (laughs) Yes. And the swooping evil's venom, which we learn from Newt has powerful, oblivious factors, Mm -hmm. rains down upon the nomages in mass— wiping from their minds the magic that has played out right, right before The them. very quite destructive and very dramatic and very visual magic that happened in the middle of a very crowded city. One must assume that some, certainly thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, would have been obliviated in that moment. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It does set up one of the most thrilling moments of the film, which mm. is the very end. Yeah, I love that. When after Jacob has opened his bakery, thanks to Newt's silver egg yeah. handoff in secret, Queenie walks in. Yeah, and there's that smile. And he looks at her. And we're going to talk later more about the moment when Jacob steps out into the obliviative force, but afterwards, she walks into the bakery and he sees her. And you can tell just from the look in his eyes and the smile on his face that it's coming back to him. And that's a really cool, powerful idea that the magic that wipes your memory is not actually more powerful than real Dumbledore voice here. The power of love. I love it. Number two, what are the best and worst connections to original canon? How did this story improve and or not so much improve what we know about the way magic works in the story before this? 
I think that most of the connections to original canon that we get are pretty positive. I agree. And enhance our understanding of something rather than either detracting from it or complicating Mm. it needlessly. Most of this is pretty good. There are only a couple that sort of grate us. But let's talk about the positive ones first. Sure. Most of them have to do with Grindelwald and Dumbledore's backstory and what we know about his family. So first, there's the line that you hinted at earlier when Grindelwald's For the Greater Good slogan is spoken aloud by Newt during the Percival Graves interrogation. Now, we know from Deathly Hallows that For the Greater Good was Grindelwald's slogan. Yes. And in essence, rationalization for for the horror that he was unleashing across magical Europe. And so when Graves is questioning Newt, one of the things that Newt says is, mass slaughter for the greater good, you mean? Yeah. And Graves says, yes, quite. It's a very weird thing to say. Quite a strange response. Yes. If you're actually just an upstanding auror. And then Newt says, looking as horrified as viewers are probably feeling in this moment, Spidey sense tingling that something is amiss. I'm not one of Grindelwald's fanatics, Mr. Graves. So why is this cool? Because we're getting to see in the moment what impact these words had for people at the time, people who were living through Grindelwald's reign of terror. You heard this from someone and you knew to run or you knew that this was someone like you, one of the fanatics. I really enjoyed, so the restricted section, wonderful restricted section today about the textbook, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I really got a kick out of the idea that here we are watching kind of the process of this book getting written. Incredible. Here is the research. This is the writing. And that was really wonderful. Going down into the case and seeing Newt in his element and seeing the way he really came alive when he was feeding the animals and feeding the creatures and talking about them. I really, really, really enjoyed that. That's the kind of stuff I love about fantasy stories when it's additive in that way, when it just pushes the boundaries of the stories out a little bit, widens the horizon. So you're like, oh, here's this other thing over here that you didn't know about. Here's how this was made. I love that so much. I love it, too. And I love it because it opens up so many doors. It's so many doors. In our minds. like. Maybe you actually did purchase, you know, Harry's school books and maybe you read the Fantastic Beasts textbook. But whether or not you did, it's still ultimately just a name. Yeah. It's just a byline, Newt Scamander. That's all you know about this guy. And to build an entire story around him to show you who he is, it opens up the possibility that any other name that ever appeared in the series could be a whole new story for us. That's so cool. And these beasts, we're going to talk about obviously the beasts at length, but these beasts who appear in a Magical Creatures lesson here or there, they become fully realized characters in their own right. It's just... It's a way to further enrich a world that we already feel is so rich and want to spend so much time in. Building off of that, I also just kind of love the conservationist message that Newt is propagating here. That there are natural wonders that exist in the world and that are rare and that are worth protecting. And that if we'd only take a second to stop and learn about them, we'd find value there. I love that, and I love the way that was woven in so skillfully and wonderfully and emotionally into a story that already exists. It's beautiful, and it tells you so much about Newt and what kind of person he is. And, you know, one of the questions that came up from people who weren't as into either the movie itself or just the idea of this Mm -hmm. as the foundation for a franchise is I don't really care about 
these creatures, That's right? Tough. And we're animal lovers, so obviously yes. we're not going to feel that way. But the function that they serve for showing you what kind of caring, open-hearted person he is, yes. is just so effective instantly. Another thing, sure. this is a big one, obviously, the sign of the Deathly Hallows. Yeah, it's huge. So one of the most iconic images in the universe, mm-hmm. in the fandom, this is tattooed on people's bodies. Not mine, though, because so, well, I am listen. a coward who can't commit. But I'm close. <laughs> I feel ready. This is, this, is the, this is the season for me, finally. It had popped up in some of the promotional images for the mm-hmm. film, posters, and it was like, whoa, okay. The moment when Graves gives it to Credence, it's on a necklace, he says, I want you to have this Credence. I would trust very few with it. And so you know it's important to him. Now, what do we know as Harry Potter fans in this moment? If you're carrying that around, mm-hmm. one of two things are true. You are Grindelwald or one of his followers right. because that is the symbol that Grindelwald adopted as his sign. We know this from Victor Crumb. Or you're a quester. Yeah. You're seeking the Deathly Hallows. Right. Either of those possibilities, the moment that this happens in the film, is totally thrilling because it means we're going to tap into something that we've wanted to learn more about for so long. And also just subtle things in that scene, like when he tells Credence that if he needs to press it, then he will come find him. Yeah. It's like, that's a precursor for the yes, Dark Mark. I love that. That gave me a, ch- a chill, actually. I was like, oh, that's cool. That's a great point because I love the idea that Voldemort would have studied a movement like Grindelwald's oh, yeah. and been like, Where did how he, close did he get? Did how he did he go wrong? wrong? Yeah. What can I use? Is there anything there I can use? And clearly, here is a thing that he thought he could use. Absolutely. We already mentioned this, but let's talk about it in a bit more depth. The Dumbledore mention. Great. When Graves brings up Newt's expulsion, Newt was expelled from Hogwarts. This is, by the way, one of the many things, including the love for magical creatures that some people use to connect Newt and Hagrid. The mm-hmm. idea that Newt might be Hagrid's father. Isaac Lee, our producer, doesn't want me to say that he believes this, but he does. And says that it will be a compelling theory if proven right, which is a, an interesting way to believe in something but not commit to it. Right. <laughs> I, I, I will say that the thing that I liked about the parallels between Newt and Hagrid, and I think they're clear, both love animals, both are disgraced in a certain way, of expelled from Hogwarts. It's clear that Dumbledore leaving aside his clear emotional connection and warm feelings for both Hagrid and we assume Newt. He knows when he finds someone who's compromised a little bit Mm -hmm. that that's a person that he can work with. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. (laughs) Leaving aside the fact that I'm sure he feels very warmly towards Newt and clearly felt very warmly towards Hagrid. Right. So He sees someone like this and he thinks, hmm, that's a person who I can work through. This is a great point because it's interesting to think about Newt and Hagrid and the parallels yes. there because, of course, our instinct is to compare Newt to Harry. Right. But looking for connections across the board there and right. the people in Dumbledore's orbit is, is a fascinating way to think about it. And so when Graves overtly, directly, directly mentions says it, yeah. after raising the matter of Newt's expulsion and noting that Dumbledore basically vouched for Newt, mm-hmm. fought for him, mm-hmm. he says, yet one of your teachers argued strongly against your expulsion. Now, what makes Albus Dumbledore so fond of you? There's so much in there. That's in that the one franchise line. in one line. That's so much in that line. Because what is the answer to that? Whatever that answer is, is going to define these next yeah. four movies and presumably a lot of what we understand about Dumbledore's earlier years in life. Part of what makes this so compelling, though, is that it's not just about Newt and Dumbledore. Because of the reveal to come, yeah. the twist— 
reassessing this, knowing it was Grindelwald speaking, it takes on so much more meaning. Yeah, because it's multiple levels. It's like, on one hand, is there perhaps some jealousy there? Right. Is this a man who still thinks about Dumbledore as much as we know that Dumbledore continued to think about him? I mean, we should do a 30-second quick download here. Yeah. Obviously, a huge part of Deathly Hallows hinges on the reveals about the boyhood relationship between Dumbledore and Grindelwald. Uh Grindelwald at Bathilda Bagshots came into Dumbledore's life at Godric's Hollow. Brilliant boys, driven by their intellect and their desire to do something great in the world, sought the Deathly Hallows together. Uh Dumbledore, at least we know, fell in love with Grindelwald. And then after Ariana Dumbledore's death, which occurred during a fight between Aberforth, Albus, and Grindelwald, Grindelwald fled. And from there went on to foment a movement of fear Mm -hmm. and oppression. Him bringing up Dumbledore here means that he is still thinking about this person too. Is it because there's affection and emotion there? Is it because he views him as a threat? He knows that he's his equal. He knows he's the one who could bring him down. We don't know the answers, but it's so thrilling to know that question is going to matter in this film franchise. Back to Queenie. Another thing I really liked was getting this really focused look at legitimacy and seeing it in action in a way that's kind of more general. Like when we see it in order, it's a very specific bridge between two people. Here we're seeing it quite differently. It's more of a sensitivity that threatens to overwhelm a person if they're not able to control it, which Queenie rides that edge of sometimes being able to control it. But I just love the way we were able to really explore a kind of magical power, I guess you could say, in a way that deepened and richened our our understanding of it in a way that also allowed us to understand something about a character. Right. Whose personality is dominated by this ability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was fascinating to consider this as something that was not just an ability you could learn and a skill you could choose to harness, to wield as basically a weapon, but as something that is deeply ingrained in your being. You know, we had the privilege of interviewing Alison Sudal, who plays Queenie at LeakyCon. Just a delight. Truly. And, you know, hearing her talk about this, describing Queenie as an empath, you know, and that idea that you're Sensing not only thoughts, but feelings, emotions, is someone okay? And yeah. for that to just be fully ingrained in every aspect of your life was yeah. really cool. I, I kept coming back to the moments in order and throughout the books that followed when Harry would say, I know that he's angry. Mm-hmm. That feeling of like intense emotion, that's when Voldemort's mind would break into his and there'd be that merging of experience. Queenie is experiencing that with much lower thresholds of emotion all the time. Right. All around her. And just how disorienting, but also emotional that would be. Imagine just walking by someone and feeling a connection with them. Well, and that also is one of the things that's great about how this enhances our ability to understand something in this universe. We always thought about this magic from Harry's perspective. Right. From the perspective of someone attempting to employ occlumency to block this. Never thought about this, really, from the perspective of the person doing the thing. So that's just a really neat repositioning that allows us to understand something we've already seen in a new way. Brilliant. Really cool. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by Star Talk. 
One of the highlights of this year's New York Comic Con was the live performance of Star Talk, featuring astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson and theoretical physicist oh! Brian Green. Those lucky enough to attend were treated to a wibbly wobbly timey wimey evening of time travel, quantum states, wormholes, and how about that side splitting comedy that also featured comic co host Chuck Nice and James Murr Murray of the Impractical Jokers? Unfortunately, Time travel hasn't been invented yet, unless you're in Harry Potter and have a time turner. But fortunately for you, you don't need a time machine to relive the evening. Just listen to last week's episode of Star Talk Radio, and you'll be technologically transported into the audience to hear what everybody's been talking about, including Neil deGrasse Tyson's emotional and surprising birthday message to his birthday buddy, NASA. You can listen to Star Talk wherever you listen to podcasts from anywhere in the space-time continuum. Mm. And make sure to subscribe. Time Machine sold separate. Star Talk! And now back to binge mode. Let's talk a bit more about Credence and the idea of the obscurial. Yeah, this is Because cool. this is a huge one. Huge. Here's the quote from Graves about what he's looking for. My vision showed only the child's immense power. He or she is no older than 10, and I saw this child in close proximity to your mother. She I saw so plainly. So this sets up that it will be Credence. There are various other moments in the film where Newt talks about how an Obscurus functions, this type of magic. You referenced the absolutely chilling, so it's useless without Mm -hmm. the host line from Graves. But it's not just that we're learning about this new thing, that we're learning about this new force clearly immensely powerful, immensely rare. It's that in learning about it and in seeing Credence operate and function, we were able to retroactively understand that this is what happened to Ariana Dumbledore. Yes. Because the word obscurial, the word obscurus never appears in original canon. And yet unambiguously, that's what this is. And it is so cool to think about the fact that J.K.R. knew that this was a thing she wanted to do the whole time and that those seeds are planted and that now through Credence we can better understand Ariana. This is somewhat meta, but I was thinking about this just this afternoon, how quickly the fan community latched on to, ah, this is what happened to Ariana to the point where now it's considered considered absolutely definitively canon. Yes. That's really cool and amazing. We have, through the entire run of Binge Mode, been referring yes. to Ariana Dumbledore as an obscurial. Absolutely. <laughs> and and that is, the fact that it's, one, so new, and two, comports so perfectly with what we understand about all the information we have in the books about Ariana, her condition, what happened. Yes. Um, this it, force that, yes. that she became because of the Muggle attack against yes. her. Ashamed of her magic. Right. And that it turned inward. People in the community... Your girl, Rita Skeeter, among them. <laughs> Chief among them, I might say. They claim that she's a squib because she was kept in hiding. But why was she really kept That's in hiding? That's a great now point. Now we understand. Look at the danger. Look at the power. That's what I'm trying to get at is why this was handled so perfectly. Because we really thought that we understood that event. But JK's brought something else in that has deepened our understanding of yes. it. Changed it in a way that makes it actually a lot more clear. Right. It's not changing it. It's enhancing it. Yeah. We yeah. we actually understand quite a bit more now. Well, for example, let's take Kendra's death. Great. Their mother. So we've always thought about this as this 
unspeakable, unconceivable horror. And guess what? Now we've seen it. Right. Because when we see Credence, his obscurus yeah. propelled outward, killing Shaw, killing Mary, the horror is that we know now that when Ariana lost control, obviously not deliberate in her case, we don't think, yeah. but when she lost control, this is how Aberforth describes it, that that's what happened. She is an obscurial, her obscurus pushed outward and did that to her mother. The way that Newt talks about the marks, you know, you know what this is, don't pretend. I really just think it's a masterclass in how to add to canon because, look, listen, we live in a world where there's any number of IPs, interconnected universes that various platforms, whether it be films, TV, streaming, whatever, are trying to deliver to you in a living, breathing way. Prequels are simply a way that stories are told now. And to be able to do this to enhance canon with a huge reveal uh-huh. in a way that enhances your understanding of a story that you already thought you understood, that's really hard to do. And to do it in a way that fans have just accepted. Right. And it also sets up so well the rest of this yes. franchise because we know that Grindelwald was there when Ariana died. Mm-hmm. And so we know that he has seen this magic. This is why he's seeking it. Yeah. He had the vision, but this is why he's seeking it. It's because he knows that this force can do really cool this kind of damage. Let's talk about something slightly more cheerful. Sure. How about the beasts? I love a beast. We've heard about these beasts. God, I love a beast. Reference here and there. Now, some of these are new to us, you know, reference in the textbook, obviously, but not necessarily explored or introduced to us at length in the seven Harry Potter books. But we get to see these things come to life in such a delightful way. Bow truckles. You know, we've heard about bow Very truckles cute. in class. And guess what? Pickett is like fucking dope. Let me say. Nifflers? Perhaps. <laughs> Nifflers are little wonderful little platypus babies. <laughs> I will say that I think one of the most emotionally wrenching moments in this movie is when they go to meet Tina's goblin contact. And oh, man. the yeah. price for it's his Pickett. information is Pickett. And he hands him over. Locks. Yeah. And he hands him over. And Pickett is like. It's like reaching for new, ugh, gutting. And then Newt later says, I was never going to do it, buddy. I was never going to really give you up. (laughs) Their their relationship is really lovely. It's beautiful. Also, just a lot of little Easter eggs, like Newt offers an Ashwinder in the speakeasy. And we know that Ashwinder eggs are used for both love potions and Felix Felicis. Nifflers, of course, helped to catalyze the Ron Harry argument about money and Goblet of Fire after they dug up the gold that turns out to be leprechaun's gold that vanishes just all these little things it's like oh we knew about that and now this niffler dude is the star of a movie truly incredible really cute i've got a quick one Uh the extension charms great like great one it's a great one so this is obviously plays a huge role in our book stories in various ways when hermione and ron and harry go on the road she does an undetectable extension charm on her bag so that she can pack mm-hmm. all the things that they need. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? And then, of course, uh, our good friend Mad Eye Moody got gotten. It was hanging out in his case Boy, for the <laughs> trunk for a while. The tents at the Quidditch the World Cup. The tents at the Quidditch World Cup. But to actually see what it means, oh, yeah, the application of it is so. Cool. He amazing. has like a city block it's in his suitcase, and. It's one of the most useful applications of magic that I've ever seen. It's incredible. You really wish that that could be some sort of like virtual reality yeah, experience man, that you could get to walk around. All the different environments, all the creatures so have their own habitats. Cool. It's also just like another way that you say, okay, Newt actually cares. He yeah. really cares. Look at this level of detail, this attention to detail to give every creature the environment. A different habitat. Right. Yeah, it's really, it's amazing. Really, really cool. Speaking of Newt and his character, here, sure. here, I got one more for you. Yeah. 
What a look for the Hufflepuffs. That Newt is the hero of these movies. And, and he's he a is great, a puff. and he is a great puff. We see the the Hufflepuff scarf when he opens yep. his case for customs and switches it to Muggleworthy. It's just an incredible thing that Hufflepuffs, who sometimes feel a little neglected, neglected, well, and they are sometimes unfairly sure. maligned, get to have the guy. You know, when Cedric is chosen during the Triwizard Tournament. It's like Penny Hardaway just taken from us before his time. <laughs> but before that, until then, it's this moment of such pride for this house that doesn't often get to be in the spotlight. And now with Newt, here's a chance again for the Puffs to have their glory. I love it. And he showed that loyal streak that Puffs have. You know, he's still got the picture of Lita Lestrange, even though they haven't been Boy, together for a while. What a picture. Listen, Whew. you know where I stand on this. Whew. She's just absolutely hot fire on the screen, <laughs> on any screen. Incredible. The worst really, I don't have much, but I, I cannot get used to Nomadge. Oh, okay. It's yeah, very it's tough. tough for me. It's just weird for me. It's tough. One of my few complaints about the movie, truly, okay. and it, it just so happens to be a complaint that connects to original canon. What does the twist and the way the twist unfolds Lead us to believe about everything we know about Wandlore mm. and the Elder Wand. Okay, yeah. Because Grindelwald, we know, or we think we know, is in possession of the Elder Wand at this time. Everything we know from the original series would lead us to believe that he would have the Elder Wand at this time. Mm-hmm. We see the merry-faced thief who was a young boy stealing it from Kuborovich. Mm-hmm. Clearly, mm-hmm. Grindelwald slash Percival Graves at this point in time is older than that. And we know that because he loses it to Dumbledore in 1945, which is after this, that this point in time is between those two events. Right. He, has he should it. have it. He has it. So he doesn't, right? Now, that's okay because right. Percival Graves is a real person, not like in real life, but right. he was a Makusa Auror. Right. He would have to use his own wand. Right. He would have to use Graves' wand. He would need that. To, he would to need to do that. Pull off this whole ruse. Yes. That's fine. But here's the thing Newt using swooping evil and Tina using a spell capture him and take his wand away. Are they now the masters of the Elder Wand? Or is there some intention at play on Graves right. slash Grindelwald? Right. Part? If you throw the fight. He, maybe he wants to be captured. Right. Does that change it? Or he knew at least that the risk was high. Right. We know that wands are sentient. So I guess it's not necessarily a bad thing, but the fact that these questions are raised in a big way and are not answered, it's like we're now two years into saying, yeah. well, what about the Elder Wand, though? Right. And I don't know that for something that's that important, that's the best outcome. I agree. It's added a layer of complexity to what, to be fair— wasn't exactly complex, but there were some definite rules that need to be adhered to. And now it seems like there's other rules which we don't understand. And for something that is so pivotal to the mm-hmm. climax of the story. Right. Now, maybe we'll end up learning a lot more that ends up feeling really fulfilling and thrilling that we got to learn all this other stuff about yeah, Wandler. That's an understandable one. But if that doesn't happen, then that's actually a letdown. And then finally, my last worst canon change would be, you know, listen. Our heroes in the original books, they sometimes Harry uses unforgivable curses. Sure. They have to modify memories. Sure. I don't want to say that obliviating is always done by the bad guys, the quote unquote bad guys, but wiping memories is definitely often associated with a bad thing happening, like Lockhart, right? Stealing stories and wiping memories and then trying to wipe Harry and Ron's memories or everything that we see happening to Mr. Roberts at the Quidditch World Cup. Now, those are ministry officials. Again, nominally good guys, at least, doing that. But it's like, oh, this is gross. This is weird. It is thus sort of uncomfortable to see obliviating and memory wiping play such a central role for the people we are rooting for in this story. Not only just— 
Tina and all of the American magical beings saying, you got to wipe the nomadist memory. But then Newt at the end being like, I got you, bro. Right. Not only is this not a problem, I'm going to help you wipe all of their memories. Tough look for our guy, Newt's commander. Number three, the extremely goblet voice. I love magic award for best use of depiction of or introduction of a magical ability or item or place or thing. A lot of good ones in lot this. A lot of introductions. A lot here. of good lot ones of in this. So, something that I haven't mentioned, because I have on here Nifflers, Bow Truckles, uh, Sweeping Evil, All the Beasts, really, the Undetectable <laughs> Extension Charm. I think the Obscurus magic is really, really interesting. So feels so destructive and out of control. Mm-hmm. And it really gives you that sense of magic as something to be awed by. Yeah. And that could be very dangerous. I also have the Obscurus in action down here. One of the things that's so cool is when you switch to the Obscurus's perspective. It almost feels like the moment when Harry is seeing the attack on Arthur through Mm -hmm. Nagini's eyes. It's like, you are the thing doing it, and you don't totally understand how or why. And also the way that they present the Obscurus in all these different emotional states— out of control, impossible to contain, seemingly acting with deliberation and intention yeah. in different moments. And then down below in the subway station at the end when when Credence's Obscurus is sort of spreading like yeah. a spider's web all over the walls. It's just so cool how the visual aesthetic reflects his emotions of the moment and his control or lack thereof in the moment. It's incredible. I- one more that I really liked, even though it was quite a dark scene, is that when they're going to execute Tina and Newt, they bring them to a room that's kind of like a huge pensive almost and they throw her memories into there. They take out a memory that would be uh, quite soothing to her. It's her mother telling her like, oh, you want to go to sleep? Everything's going to be fine. And the person who's running the execution says, doesn't that look good, honey? Don't you want to just go in there? And that's quite a disturbing thing to imagine that they could take your most comforting, warm memory and use that to lull you into a place mm-hmm. of comfort in order to take your life. Terrifying. Quite terrifying. You know, we've talked about the beasts a lot at this point, but I will pick them here. Sure. I mean, we're introduced to a lot of new beasts here in a meaningful way, and it's just so cool to see them. I think my favorite is Picket, the bow truck, although Beautiful. the Nifflers are incredible. Quite like the whole sequence with the Arumpent. There's a lot of comedic relief there with the musk and the helmet. It's very mm-hmm. funny and just looks really neat. The whole demiguy sequence, like the idea, again, there's more magic we're learning about. You know, mm-hmm. demiguy's hairs are part of making an invisibility cloak. Swooping Evil is probably my other favorite of these. Just the way that that, it's like this little tiny ball that Nude yeah. is squirting venom out of and then becomes this weapon of war. There's that great moment where he's like, leave his brains. <laughs> I love it. The beasts are so, so great. Obviously, we already talked about this, but another one is just seeing Queenie's Mm. legitimacy in action, understanding more about how this magic in this particular form works. And then even though the mass obliviating is very fucked up and a tough look for our guys, the way that that sequence plays out is pretty cool. Seeing Frank the Thunderbird rain down this mind-erasing venom and you see, you know, the newspaper headlines changing and the banker, Mr. Bingley's face, like, yeah. shifting as he takes a shower. That's just really neat, the way that that unfolds. Number four. Yeah. The He Was That Friend <laughs> award for the most effective snapshot of, not teen this time, 
Because these just are, angst. These are adults, just angst but and romance. Angst or romance. Some good choices here. I'm going to go with Queen and Jacob. I think it's the home run. They carry a lot of the emotional heft of the film. The fact that Queenie is this extremely sensitive person who you could tell is kind of like shut in, isolated. And just the way that she reacts to Jacob's openness and warmth. And consequently, what is it that she loves about Jacob? Is it Jacob, he finds wonder in this world. He's seeing this stuff and he's like, wow, this is incredible. This is amazing. Like, there's so many scenes where he's like, I, I'm going to tell people. I can't believe that this is, uh, I know. you know, it's and amazing. she reacts to that. That's the thing that draws her in is that this pure feeling of happiness and glee at a world that is truly fascinating and interesting. I love their relationship and it carried a lot of the emotional heft for me. Every single moment between them is pitch perfect. Yeah. The happy moments. Mm-hmm. The thrilling moments, the devastatingly sad moments, all of them resonate with you as a viewer in a way that is kind of incredible for characters who you just met. I agree. And probably we'd care about them a lot as individuals, but through their relationship and their blossoming love, we come to care about them so fully, so quickly. And it is just wonderful. It really is one of the hearts of the film. You know, there are other romances They are a little more slowly developing, but we'll give a a, a moment of praise here to Tina and Newt, who go from active antagonists— Sean Fennessy's favorite, Catherine Watterson. (laughs) —to having a truly very moving farewell before Newt gets on his ship at the end. And especially because of what we learn in the back half of the film when we see Zoe Kravitz's photo and we get these allusions to Lita Lestrange. And it's very clear that this is, a you know, a lost love yes. for Newt. And to see him shift his focus to Tina in that moment and actually give his heart to her. You know, there's that wonderful moment where they're talking about his book and he says— I'm so sorry. How would you feel if I gave you your copy in person? And her face just lights yeah. up and he's on the verge of tears. And it's just it's just really, really precious and winning. These two people, again, Queenie and Jacob, they want to be together. These are two people who want to give their hearts. Newt and Tina, that's not their instinct. Right. They're very guarded. And so to see them break down those walls with each other so organically is, is really lovely. That's great. Number five, sights and sounds, the most notable hair, costume, score, CGI element, or visual. I'm just going to stand right away for Newt's wardrobe. I like a nice, like, long coat. It's great. On a man. I like tweed. I like the kind of, like, tweedy vest under a suit with a long coat. I'm a big fan of luggage also. Like, I like... (laughs) I like I do like that kind of like bespoke, very leathery, old school luggage, even though it's extremely inefficient and makes your arm tired and I would never actually travel with it. Yeah. But I've always like even as a kid liked briefcases and cases and it's like good. With it's a, good. there's something so tactile about it. I just love Newt's entire look. It's a great look. We saw a ton of Newt cosplay down great. at LeagueCon and it was all exceptional. Yeah. I love the score of this movie. It's very good. The music is incredible. It's got that oomph, you know? Like, it makes my heart pound. I feel like the music is reflecting my emotion of the moment in a way that I always find extremely satisfying. It is simultaneously cueing me up to feel something and reflecting what I already feel, I think, quite effectively. Jay, you already talked about in 
Question number three, the magic death pit. But yeah, I yeah. think that the visual of how that whole room is staged yeah, is, is really effective. We obviously also already talked about the Obscurus effect, but that's another one here. Inside of the creature case, we just cannot say enough about how that looks. Which environment in there was your favorite? Do you have one? I like the way that the Thunderbird one kind of simulated like an open desert plain, yeah. but also like it could rain on him also. It seems so open. Like mm-hmm. the idea of there being so much space in yeah. there. Something about it really intrigues me. And I love that. I love that too. I probably would vote for the Nifflers like Scrooge McDuck treasure <laughs> cave. <laughs> they just keep it, McGallion away from that. My issue with the Nifflers, and I love the Nifflers. <gasps> They're so cute. It's oh just God. like a lot of, you need a nanny cam or something on the <laughs> Nifflers all the time. And it's just like so much. What are the Nifflers doing now? What do they have now? It's just a lot with the Nifflers. The Niffler is a great Star Wars-esque, we know this is a merch home run yes. play, which I support. Good yeah. for you. Take my money. I also, I, I really like Inside Nude's case, the environment in which Jacob stumbles upon the Obscurus because it's so stark and barren. And you're like, something's up here. Yeah. Why is this totally on its own? I yeah. like that a lot. I love the visual, the CGI, the staging, everything about the way that Percival Graves performs magic in this movie. Yeah. There is a ton of nonverbal and which a is, ton of wandless. Which is basically just like a movie thing now. Normally, I don't like it in the yeah. movies for that very reason. I want to hear the spells. I want yeah. to know what magic is being performed. But in this particular case, again, especially in light of the reveal to come, I think it's incredibly effective because you watch him and you're like, this guy is no fucking He's joke. very powerful. This like, is unbelievable. He does a few disarm moves where, like, the, you know, the wand flies away and then he just kind of wipes his hand, this offhand, uh-huh. and people just move. It's incredible. And then I loved watching Queenie cook. I oh, loved yeah? watching that strudel. Oh, yeah. yeah. I loved watching that strudel just braid yeah. itself together in midair and hear her say honey. And honey. All of it. Just wonderful. That. Judging Tina for eating another hot dog. Number six. Best quote. Some good ones in here. Listen, I talked about this off the top, but I want to say again, the exchange between Newt and Percival Graves Grindelwald when he says, you know, talking about the Obscurus. So it's useless without the host. And then Newt says, useless, useless. That is a parasitical, magical force that killed a child. What on earth would you use it for? And also- He's so disturbed. He's so disturbed. But also a light goes off for Tina too, where she's like, hmm, that's weird. Uh That's- different Uh and something is wrong. Another excellent thing about Eddie Redmayne's performance in that moment is it's not only forecasting the revelations to come. Uh It tells you so much about what he's experienced. The pain and the anguish with which he says that. We didn't see him separate the Obscurus from the host, but you You know 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 what that was. I'll start with a light one from the top. Mary, our girl Mary, she's garbage, just to be clear, says, are you a seeker? A seeker after truth? And Newt says, Yeah, this is good. I'm more of a chaser, really. But um bum ba. Love a little Quidditch nod. Uh, I yeah. thought that was great. <laughs> Here's a one. So I, I mentioned before how I really loved the theme of conservation of the natural yes. world in this. So at one point, Newt and Jacob are talking, and Newt says, I need to get going, find everyone who's escaped before they get hurt. Kowalski says, Before they get hurt. Yes, Mr. Kowalski, for they're currently in an alien terrain surrounded by millions of the most vicious creatures on the planet, humans. I have that one, too. I love that. really good. I love it. I identify so strongly with Newt. Like, give me my cat. Give me Pickett and a Niffler over most people most days. (laughs) Uh, Another Newt line here. Well, 
My philosophy is that worrying means you suffer twice. I find this line aspirational. Mm. I spend so much of my time (laughs) worrying and thus suffering twice. I hear this and I'm like, I'm going to change the way I live. Newt makes me want to change the way I live. So shouts to Newt for real. We obviously already talked about it, but we have to just give it the credit it's due one more time. What makes Albus Dumbledore so fond of you? Yeah, that is. It's incredible. I only have a couple more. Newt saying, New York is definitely more interesting than I expected. You know, touched me as a native New Yorker. I enjoyed that. (laughs) Uh, And then we spoke of our fondness for the Queenie Jacob plotline. So there's that moment when Queenie says to Jacob, I'll come with you. We'll go somewhere. We'll go anywhere. See, I ain't never going to find anyone like you. It's like, that's very sweet, Queenie. I love that. I have that one, too. And the continuation of the exchange as well. He says there's loads like me. And she says no. And not only is it so sweet in terms of our full investment in their romance at that point, it is a brilliant inversion of how we think about magic. Yeah. Like, we think of the magical people as being the the one of one. And the idea that he actually is, that the Mm. nomad is, is is really special. And as a viewer who is not capable of doing magic, that's a pretty cool feeling. Yeah. I also had the So It's Useless Without a Host line. Here's another Queenie one. This is to Newt about Lita. This really hits me. Yeah. She was a taker. You need a giver. The I refuse to bow down any longer line from Graves yeah. as as the reveal is about to unfold. I just think that's an incredibly effective stage setting for I, the films to come. I agree. And I also love in that one line, you understand a lot about Grindelwald and when the reveal happens. Yes. He truly does not understand why people who are so clearly superior who are so blessed with godlike powers should have to kowtow to people who are clearly, mm-hmm. as far as he is concerned, inferior. Yeah. It's all there it's in that line. It's all there in that line, and you understand it so keenly. Yeah, it's great. And you also, and I think this is crucial for not just this movie, but the series going forward, you understand why that would appeal to people. You understand yes. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why, if you were a magical person, Uh and I'm not absolutely not saying that this is a correct philosophy or a good (laughs) philosophy, it's an evil philosophy, but you understand why that would appeal to people. So you guys at home can update your list. Oh, come on. I knew you were going to do this. Pro Vernon Dursley, pro Grindelwald. Enough. Enough! I think this is my favorite one in the entire movie. I actually regularly think about this moment, and every time I watch this part of the movie, I turn into the rain that Frank the Thunderbird is sending down across the entire city. I'm just a puddle of tears. When Jacob, who had been protected from the rain underground in the subway station, when the Makusa president says, you gotta obliviate the nomash. And there's this really tender moment of farewell between Jacob and Queenie and Newt and Tina. And he's about to back up into the rain. <laughs> I'm going I'm to cry, probably. Oh, it's just so heartbreaking. He's on the verge of tears. He says, I was never even supposed to be here. Yeah, well, I was never supposed to know. And it's just so sad, but I also think that it's such a meta commentary on what we love about these stories. Right. It's you a, know, that's the gift of them. It's a window into a world that you were never that supposed we were to. never supposed to know. I just love it. It is so perfect. That is vintage JKR. And then similarly, right before he steps in, he says, it's just like waking up, right? And, you know, that's how we feel every time one of these stories yeah. ends. It's just like waking up, right? I just thought that was so great. That's wonderful. Finally, Newt 
saying farewell, Latina, also on the verge of tears, a lot of tears at the end of this movie, people change. I've changed, I think, maybe a little. I just love that. Change and the capacity for change is such a core theme in the original seven books. And we're seeing here already with Newt how that can happen. Beautiful. Beautiful. Finally, number seven. Who won the movie? A lot of choices here. A lot of great performances and great characters. I'm going to say, listen, it's Newt's movie. I'm going to go with Eddie Redmayne, as I said. I think he does so much with gesture and facial expression. Is clearly basing his character as a person who has trouble connecting to other people but feels a comfort level with nature, with animals. And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people understand and feel. And I think it's such an interesting choice. It is really fascinating. I'd be fascinated to know how he hit on that Mm -hmm. because it makes the character so compelling. And you under like that very first moment when he shows up at customs and he either can't or won't or is just simply more comfortable not looking the person in the eye and is looking everywhere else. Yeah. Right in that moment, you're like, I understand why this person would decide to spend his life studying animals. Yeah, I agree. He's my pick as well. And I think it must have been such an incredible privilege, but also a burden to know that, you know, unlike every single actor in the original eight movies who were bringing something that had been written Mm -hmm. word by word on the printed page to life that he had to invent this character. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a newt in our minds. It's all on him. And again, yeah. that's a gift. Yeah. You don't have to worry about how you're going to stack up to what's in somebody's head already, but it's also like, it's all on you to make it work. It's yeah. all on you. And he does make it work. It's incredible. I also want to give a shout out, a win, some house points to Dan Fogler, Jacob Very Kowalski. Funny. Incredible. A lot of people really responded to Jacob's character. Again, the avatar for the non-magical viewer. Cram's favorite character in this movie. Cram's favorite character. You know, we spend a lot of times when we read fantasy or we watch fantasy thinking, I want to be the one who can do the magic. It is really cool that Jacob gives you another way to think about actually having access to this in a way that you maybe really could, right? Someone could just switch your case and all of a sudden, this could be your life. It's incredible. And he brings so much energy and pure sincere enthusiasm yeah. to it just the way he reacts to all these magical things like wow yeah you know also it can be hard sometimes to realize or to even think about the fact that they're not seeing a lot of this stuff this is cg yeah. that's incredible acting yeah you know yeah. like he's looking at like a broomstick with a ping pong ball on it and he's like, oh my god yeah and it's like this intense energy comes across the screen he is really wonderful and he makes these little yelps and little noises yeah. that are so just a twitch and, mustache yeah everything really good really funny guy also we were in his presence at leaky con and seemed like a truly wonderful individual he did another winner for us allison sudal queenie just Oof. incredible i mean in so many ways a part of the heart of the film it brings a fragility and a sensitivity to that role which as she said when we interviewed her at LeakyCon, was originally written as more of kind of like a bombshell right. role. And she brought this real soul to it, old soul to it, that I think really made the character deep and interesting in a really fascinating way. Absolutely. Also, Pickett. <laughs> Pickett Pick is a wonderful. winner of this movie. Pickett, very wonderful. Very cute. Just, first of all, clutch as hell. Actually yeah. gets shit done. Yeah. Sweet charming, has a real affection for an attachment to Newt. Beautiful. I'm going to go one more who wins. Colin Farrell 
Colin Farrell's an actor that I've always really liked. Love him. Whatever he's in, he makes always makes interesting choices that make so much sense in the moment, bring a character life in a very strange. He has these like really weird gestures and the way he slouches his body when he's like inter- interviewing Newt, interrogating Newt, the way, you know, the way he'll put his hand to his head uh-huh. and like cock his head in a, in a way that's really interesting. The scenes he has with Credence where there's this very palpable romantic energy. Oh, yeah. He just commands the screen in a really fascinating way. I, th- I thought he was wonderful in this role. I agree. And we can spend a moment here talking about this. I wish that he had continued to play the part. I agree. And that Johnny Depp were not in these movies. He's a very, very fine actor. Johnny Depp appears in the first film for 45 seconds. About a moment. And not recasting him, given everything going on, is disheartening. Final winner, The Return of Magic. Yeah, it's back. We're back in the world. It's incredible. I got to say, that's a great one because it's very heartening to see how much space there is within this fictional realm. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of ways you can go. Listen, of course, I want to know more about Dumbledore. I want to know more about the characters I love. But take me anywhere in this world. Where do you want to go? Who do you want to go with? I don't care. Take me (laughs) anywhere. And I want to just know more. I want to know more. Me too. You want to get the Bathilda Bagshot origin? Too much Grindelwald there again, maybe? I wouldn't hate it. <laughs> the Armando Dippet master moron How about adaptation? How about like a buddy comedy and it's D-Breath Doge and, uh, and Albus Dumbledore buddies? I would love that. Just like a buddy more comedy. Doge? <laughs> more dog breath. Doggy D. Oh, Doge. Poor fucker. <laughs> Never got a fact right. <laughs> All right, friends. Now there's absolutely nothing for you. Or Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, to worry about. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest yes. of this journey. And that you'll join us again next time when we will be discussing the next film in this franchise, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Again, reminder, please check out our instant reaction video breakdown, our seven key questions yes, from the please. film. On the ringer.com. Spend some time with us, with Ice Lee, with Zach Cram. It's on the Ringer's YouTube channel and the ringer.com. Check out our other coverage of the new movie on all Ringer properties. And then stay tuned for the return of our Deathly Hallows podcast. Until next time, remember, we're not going to obliviate you. You're one of us now. Oh, God, Queenie, how'd you do that in... I never knew I would like something like that. Oh, yeah, you did. Somehow I just knew what you'd like. Yeah, but God, I never thought I'd put the finger up there. Holy cow. Yeah, you, you, you've been thinking about it. I just, no, I have. Yeah, yeah, you have. You really? You've been thinking about it. <laughs>